Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear fellow servants and acclaimers of Christ the King, it's the kind of story that editors at sports magazines and producers of sports TV love. We see them especially in connection with the Olympics, but they can pop up at almost any time with almost any sport. It's a a basically simple narrative, but with individually specific, perhaps even complicated details. Talented individual, usually starts in childhood, finds a sport that he or she loves and excels at, and pushes hard, 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 overcoming numerous obstacles and facing countless challenges. Maybe the decks are stacked against him or she has an injury that she overcomes, but pushes, 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 all with one goal in mind, driving it all, and then being recognized on the national or world stage as the best of the best, getting that medal or trophy and holding it high, reveling in the cheers, the fame, the hero worship, and often even the riches that accompany his or her sporting success. There is also the driven entrepreneur, though his or her story is perhaps less commonly celebrated in the media. And that individual starts with a groundbreaking new idea or a little shop on the corner, or maybe even an antiquated family business. But he or she puts in long hours, makes big sacrifices, struggles for years, and finally breaks through. What began with a single-minded determination to succeed grew into a, a business empire with wealth and power and public praise, exactly what had been driving him or her all along. And we best not forget the warrior Euro, although found more often in in history and literature now than in our, our modern contemporary culture. A young man, perhaps even a boy, sets his mind to becoming the best of the best to being the subject of of odes and accolades, of of legends and songs. And so he carves a path to success on the battlefield, vanquishing ever more deadly enemies, overcoming ever greater odds, leading ever more successful charges and campaigns. The danger is real at every step, but the glory at the end of the battle or war is what drives him on. And then, then there's Jesus. That wasn't him at all. His story is completely different. Yes, he he was like those others in, in, in pushing forward, ever on towards his goal, despite obstacles and opposition, but he was absolutely unlike them in what drove him on. His goal was never glory or fame, or riches, or power. He wanted nothing for himself. And what moved and motivated him and kept him going was what he would achieve for others, for the entire world. 
He gave up his very life. And before that, the majesty and power of his divinity gave it all up to reach his goal. And that is hardly the act of a man driven to find a place on the world stage, to be showered with praises, to, to rule it with power, or to be rewarded with, with trophies or crowns or riches. So what kind of achiever is Jesus? Our text today, Isaiah 42, 1-4, though a, a prophecy given hundreds of years before he walked the earth, describes him for us. The Lord himself speaks of him and says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I am placing my spirit upon him. He will bring forth the verdict for the nations. He will not cry out. He will not raise his voice. He will not make his voice heard in the street. A bent reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. He will faithfully bring forth the verdict. He will not grow dim, and he will not be crushed until he establishes the verdict on the earth. The coastlands will wait for his teaching. Now that first verse there establishes Christ's credentials, and they cannot be matched. The Lord, the creator and sustainer of the universe, claims him as his servant and tells us that divine power upholds and sustains him. But he is special beyond that. He is the Lord's chosen one, the one the Lord delights in, and the one he places his spirit upon. That this fits Jesus is confirmed by by what we see at his baptism and his transfiguration. When the Father himself speaks from heaven his approval of his Son, and when we see the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus like a dove, an anointing unlike any other that makes him an anointed one, Messiah, Christ, unlike any other. And we also see the the mission and motivation that this servant of the Lord is given to bring forth the verdict for the nations. But as he does so, we see that he does not lay claim to power or to privilege as he might, as is his right. He does not assert himself over others in order to achieve his ends. He is instead humble and other-centered. Whether preaching or suffering, He does not draw attention to himself to say, hey, look at me, give me, give me, give me glory. He does not cry out or raise his voice or or make his voice heard in the street. He does not make demands or seek or accept glory at anyone else's expense. But he deals gently with others, putting them first, especially the weak and the hurt, and the broken. A bent reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not snuff out. But do not mistake his gentleness for a lack of determination or or effort. What he comes to do, he accomplishes. He will faithfully bring forth the verdict. 
He will not grow dim and he will not be crushed until he establishes the verdict on the earth. Jesus is single-minded in his mission. He is focused on his goal. He is steadfast in achieving what he was sent to do. And doing it not just for a few people, not just for his own nation, the Jews, but for the nations, for the earth, for all people, from the mountains to the plains to the deserts to the coastlands. But what is this verdict? And what makes it so important? It is nothing other than the gospel, the good news of our salvation. In this case, God uses here the language of the courtroom, of guilt and innocence, to speak of God's grace, his undeserved love for the undeserving, and what that grace moves him to do. What Jesus would achieve as the Lord's servant with his life and with his death and resurrection, that would be and is the complete changing of our status before God. Not on the basis of our efforts or worth, but entirely on the basis of his work and sacrifice. You see, on our own, when called before God for judgment, we are nothing but guilty and deserving of death and hell. We may not want to admit it, but it is true because we are all sinners from the time that we are conceived. And we all add sin upon sin to our guilt every day of our lives. From things that we consider petty like white lies and laziness to, to things that in, in shame we, we try to cover up or excuse like theft or fraud or idolatry or an adultery. None of us have any way to get rid of our guilt, to remove the stain and corruption. No way to, to sacrifice for our sins. The only option available to us on our own is death. And after that, damnation. It is what we deserve for disobeying our Creator, for consistently insisting on our own way instead of God's, and then doing what we please, even though it displeases Him. But with His suffering and death on the cross, Jesus worked a courtroom miracle for us. By dying as the sinless Son of God in our place, He took all the sins of all people, including you and me. He took them, took them into himself, became identified with them, and he paid for them all. He was the perfect lamb of sacrifice who bore the sins of the world. And his blood was accepted by his father as sufficient to wash away all guilt. Which means that now all those who stand before God's judgment seat, claiming the benefits of Christ's work, receive a new verdict. Innocent, not guilty, holy, free of sin.
that is what Jesus came to bring forth for the nations, for all of us. And he did. And that is something for us to, to count on. And in counting on it, be saved. That is something for which he deserves all praise and thanks and honor. And Palm Sunday gives us a small taste of that. We might think of it as a, as a minute down payment on what the Lamb of God will receive in heaven and for all eternity because of His sacrifice for sinners. What is it we see on Palm Sunday? The, the crowds hail Him as a king. They're thinking only of their nation, but in reality, He is Lord of the universe. They shout, Save us! Hosanna! Thinking only to honor Him with the words of Psalm 118, which we read earlier. But in reality, by saying that, they are recognizing that, that He is the one who saves the world from death and hell. The crowds acclaim Him as one who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, using the words of that psalm, even though that they don't realize He has come from God in order to make them holy for God. All the way through that Palm Sunday story, we see what Isaiah described here. We see the one who deserves to be acclaimed as king, who deserves all glory because it is his from eternity. And yet we see him not taking that, not asserting that, accepting it when it is given because it is his, but not demanding, not taking advantage at all, nor letting it go to his head. He rides on a donkey, not in a chariot, not carried by servants, not in a mighty stallion, a humble colt, the foal of a donkey, rides through the streets, and at the end of it, that's it. No more. Our reading from, from Philippians makes the point so beautifully. Though he was by nature God, all glory was his he gave it up. He emptied himself, taking the nature of a servant. Humbled himself even to the point of death. Death on a cross, which was the goal, which was where he would be five days later. And yet at the same time, the Philippians passage points out the glory that awaits that God exalts him, gives him the name that above every name that at the last day, one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him and every tongue confess that he, Jesus Christ, is the Lord. Even our Old Testament reading from Zechariah shows the humility of the king coming to God's people and yet shows him going on continuing, pressing on, because he has something to bring to his people. And he is steadfast in doing that. Resolute, firm, continuing in his mission. Steadfast. Now you may recall that our theme for Lent has been steadfast Savior, steadfast saints. 
Our text in Palm Sunday have clearly shown us Christ's steadfastness. But what does this have to do with steadfastness for us, his people, his saints? Well, in the first place, we simply have to appreciate what a wonderful Savior we have that, that would do so much for us without our deserving it or, or even asking for it. And then trust it. Believe it. Leave your sins behind. Leave them at the foot of the cross and turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. For that verdict of not guilty to be proclaimed on you. And then rejoice to be one of his holy ones, his saints, and hold on to the amazing truth that Jesus did all that he did, living, working, suffering, dying, that he did it not for the glory not for the fame or wealth or, or power or influence, but for that one purpose, to save you and other sinners from being punished for your sins. You never have to doubt or wonder what was behind any of it. It was all grace. It was all mercy. It was all the love of God. You have a Savior with no agenda other than your justification. No agenda other than the one of being the one who changes you from guilty to perfect and then gives you paradise. And then, in faith, in Christ, as a saint, you are steadfast too. It's what's... Paul encouraged in the reading from Philippians, let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You are empowered by the gospel to live and work the same way Jesus did. Of course, you don't have the same mission and you haven't somehow become divine as he was, but because you are forgiven and made holy new creations in Christ, you are not who you used to be or as you used to be. You are able to do what you were not able to do when you were dead in your trespasses. And most importantly, you are no longer burdened or weighed down with or corrupted by sin or weakness. There is nothing then holding you back and every reason now to give yourself fully to the Lord and His service, to, to press on with and in our callings as Christians, to live the holy, perfect lives of loving Him and loving our neighbor that He has called us to, and, and to do so every step of the way without regard for glory. Because we are now driven by grace, not by any kind of self-serving ambition. And of course, we also have Christ's example to follow and inspire us. He has showed us how to walk the way of the cross. And like Him, we do our work and go through our lives knowing that the glory that truly matters is the glory that comes at the end, after this life, in heaven, we will share the perfection and bliss that is Christ's. 
because we have become part of God's family. Though we don't enjoy it fully now, it is ours, and no one will ever be able to take it from us. And until that day, when that glory is complete and fully ours to rejoice in, we are content to trust God to uphold us through all the challenges, struggles, and opposition in our lives, even the times when we are sharing in Christ's sufferings, being obedient to suffering, perhaps even to death. He will sustain His people in all things at all times. He has promised. He has claimed us in baptism we belong to him in faith, just as the Lord has given us a steadfast Savior. He will make and keep us as his steadfast saints. Amen. Please rise. And the God of all glory, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.